Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Gospel of Mark chapter 9. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get the Bible to you. And you can go to Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter. So last week we paused our study through Mark's Gospel and we went a little bit deeper into a theme that keeps coming up in Mark's Gospel and that is spiritual warfare. Do you remember that sermon? Were you here for that? Just nod? Yes? Okay. A lot of confidence there. Today's account is going to deal with the same thing, spiritual warfare. Here's what's happening. This is, a, this is going to be a touching story. This is a day in the life of Jesus. Um, there's a young man who has been demonized since he was a young boy, it says there in the text. Now, what's unique about this account is you really get a close-up look at the desperation of this young man's father. You can really put yourself in his shoes. And it's really heart-wrenching. I mean, can you imagine? I have two little boys. Okay, I couldn't imagine a little bit later in their life that something were to happen where they would become demonized, uh, demonically possessed, so much so that they go through what you're about to read in this account. Okay, Here's what's going to happen. This account is going to lead us into a discussion today about keeping faith while living in a broken world. Keeping the faith while living in our broken world. We're surrounded by tragedies every day. Are we not? Every day we're surrounded by tragedies. Whether it's a close friend who's going through some kind of um, mental health situation or whether it's watching the news or whether it's a medical crisis, we're surrounded by tragedies, by distrust, by dysfunction every day. All right? Now, here's the question. Do they deconstruct your faith or do they activate your faith and deepen it? Right? When you read something in the news, when you go through something, I remember going through some things in college, do they deconstruct and destroy your faith or do they call your faith to go deeper into what is true? Because the reality is there's only two options and these tragedies, these injustices, these corruptions, this unholiness that we're surrounded by, it, it's, it's not going away. It's going to continue to happen and it's going to continue to confront you. Some of our older adults can tell you they've lived a longer life. These things are going to continue to confront you. And so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how to have big faith in a big God in a broken world. That's where the chapter 9 is going to take us. How to have big faith in a big God in a broken world. But to get there, we have to immerse ourselves in this historical story this morning. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to try your best to emotionally, not just intellectually, but emotionally put yourself in this distraught father's shoes. To feel just a teaspoon of what he felt and to see just a little bit of what he saw. Okay? You got it? That's the game plan. Everyone good? Say good. good. Awesome. All right. Now remember, just two weeks ago, Jesus is now coming down the mountain where he was transfigured. Remember that story? And as soon as he steps off the mountain, he's confronted by this father that's just trying to help his son. Let's take a look. Chapter 9, picking up in verse 14. We're going to read the whole story through, and then we'll go through it. And when they came 
And when they came to the disciples, this is off the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Goes on in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus turned and asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, Jesus' disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. End of the account. Now, what a day for this particular father and his son. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to take a step back, though, before we get deeper into the story. And I want to make a a clarifying point about the satanic and the demonic and their activity in our own lives. I think you're going to find this very helpful. So so here's how it works. According to scripture and according to the tradition, there's three kinds of diabolical activity that can happen in a person's life. I think we have them on the screen. There you go. Three kinds. I just want to go through these quickly so we have a certain biblical framework for what's going on here and what can happen in the lives around us. The first that you find is satanic and demonic influence. This happens all the time, everywhere through our fallen world. The the enemy has all kinds of outlets to influence, not just unbelievers, but believers, us in this room, right? All kinds of different outlets from our own flesh and our own sin to media, entertainment, political actors, you name it, the influence of the satanic is wide. It's all around us. You can't get away from it, right? Think of the word even entertainment. Entertainment, you have to be careful with the kind of entertainment that you let in. Entertainment, enter in. Entertainment is letting something enter in to your mind and to your heart. The demonic, satanic has influence all around us through a thousand different outlets. That's number one. The second is satanic and demonic oppression. We looked last week how there can be different schemes, it says, in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10. We looked at schemes that the devil can have 
against a person or a family or a situation where there's a, there's a full frontal attack that the enemy can have and he begins to oppress a certain person or a certain group of people. That's the second kind. The third, and these grow in degree. The third is possession. It's satanic and demonic possession where it's not just the influence of the demonic around you. It's not just the oppression of the demonic upon you, but it's actually demonic coming within you. This is the highest degree of diabolical activity. This is very scary, very traumatic, serious situation that demands deliverance and exorcism, as it's been called, so that this person is free from that kind of activity. Okay? You got it? I know it's not the most cheery thing to learn about, but it's important. This is what you see in the scriptures. This is what you see in everyday life. If you sit here this morning and you might question, well, are these stories from back then? Do they happen today? I've referenced this several times, but The Atlantic, a secular magazine well-known uh, a few years ago, its cover story was how demonic possession is on the rise in the United States and the call for priests and pastors to do exorcism is on the rise. This is a secular magazine that all of us uh, could pick up off any shelf. This is real, not only in our world, not only in the third world, but in all of the world. And this is how it works. Now, we hear that, and we're not too encouraged, and we ask this question, what do I do with that, right? How do I ensure, this is the question that should come up in your mind, how do I ensure that my life is clean of demonic activity? The best advice I was ever given from my pastor was this. Demons are like rats. They go where the trash is. Demons are like rats. They go where the trash is. You go by a dumpster, there's a lot of trash spread out all around there, or a certain um, underprivileged area that doesn't have the sanitation it needs. It's infested with rats. Rats go where the trash is. In the same way, the demonic is like rats. It goes where the trash is in our lives and the lives around us. And so if you want to get rid of the demonic in your life, you take out the trash. You don't want any of that trash in your life, whether it's entertainment, whether it's certain reoccurring sin patterns, whatever it might be, you don't want any of that trash around your life because where the trash is is where the rats go. It's where the demonic goes. And so the application for us from Scripture would be, Lord, I want to get any kind of trash by your grace out of my life. Does that make sense? Good. Let's get back to the story. So we don't know what happened to this boy in childhood. The text just doesn't tell us the backstory. He might have been exposed to the occult when he was young. There might have been some kind of abuse that he endured. There might have been some kind of generational thing going on in his family. We just don't know. You see right there in verse 21, Jesus asks almost like a medical question. Look at verse 21. He says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus is trying to inquire the backstory, right? What we do know is that this boy lives in a broken world, a world where there is satanic and demonic activity, right? Broken world. If you've been around church, you've heard that term a lot, okay? Have you ever, have you ever wondered why? Why all these tragedies? Why all this pain? Why all this suffering? Why all this inequality? Why do we live in a broken world? If God is good, Right? We believe that. If God is good, First John says that God is light. There's no darkness in him. If God is good, why is our world so broken? 
Can we ask that question in church today? The world's asking it of us. We should ask it of ourselves. Why is our world so broken? The Bible has a comprehensive and clear answer for that, unlike what I would argue so many other religions and philosophies that I've studied. It has a very clear and comprehensive answer. And I'm going to show it to you today because I think it's necessary we answer it. Okay, And it's going to take a decent amount of scripture and page turning. So I hope you're ready. Okay, I want to answer it by going not to the beginning of the Bible first, but actually to the end of the Bible to get after our answer. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Why or how did our world become so broken? That's the question we want to look at. It's going to take us back eventually into today's passage in Mark 9. We're at the end of the Bible. This is the end of history when God wraps it all up. The Bible ends in a striking way. What you're going to find here is this city, this city of God coming and crashing into earth. God, it says, creates a whole new heavens and a whole new earth, a different plane of reality that we will live on as the redeemed people of Christ. And you see a city crashing into this new earth. Take a look, verse 1, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Pause. Nothing like Mark chapter 9. For the former things, it says, have passed away. Now pause there. This scene of this, it says a new Jerusalem, a holy city, the city of God, right? This is God's ultimate goal for humanity. Where God dwells with them, there's no pain, no death, no mourning, no demonic activity. He's driven hell out of his world, right? The goal is this, to construct a city and society where God dwells in harmony with humanity. That's God's ultimate goal. If you want to know where history is going, although it's a windy road to get there because we're sinful people, that's where it's eventually heading in some kind of form and fashion, okay? Here's what we often miss. What's at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, was God's plan from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. Really important to get that. This city of God was the original plan. And he takes all of the pages of the Bible and history that we're in right now to eventually get there. I told you we're going to turn pages, go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Chapter 2 of Genesis. So in Genesis 2, God places man and woman, humanity in the beginning, 
in a garden called Eden. This garden, get this, is supposed to eventually turn into a holy city, a metropolis, where God dwells in harmony with humanity. We just read that, didn't we? That's God's goal here. Take a look. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's his assignment. Earlier in Genesis 1, he says he makes men and women, men and women in his image, and he sends them out with a command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, build. Build, build, build. Right? Grow families. Construct a civilization, a society of God, where I dwell in harmony with people. That's the goal from the beginning. And so as the human population increases through time, right, be fruitful and multiply, this garden is supposed to become a holy metropolis. We know the story. The plan quickly goes awry. Right there in the third chapter of Genesis, what happens? We've got to understand clearly what happens. Too often, um, I think we get caught up in some of the the personification of the serpent and, and Adam and Eve and how did it all work and, and we kind of miss uh, the main point that Genesis is making. And it's this, that in the third chapter, humanity rebels and runs from and cuts themselves off from their creator. We did it. God didn't do it. We ran away. God gave us the ability to make choice. Only in a position of choice can love actually exist. God didn't make us robots. That's why the tree exists in the garden, so they have a a choice to love him, follow him, or not. We chose the latter to run and cut ourselves off from the creator, right? And listen, you've heard me say this before. It's not simply that the garden fall happened in some kind of sense, but that it still happens every day today. It happens in our own lives. It's not happened one time and God holds all of us humanity. Well, you ate the apple, so, you know, forever I'm angry and, you know, why did you do that? That's a fairy tale. That's not how it works. It's that we do this every day. We run from our creator. And when we do that, right, when we do that, this is what's happening. The Bible's clear. The reason the world is the way it is is because humanity continues to rebel against God, who is the very source of life. Now, what does that mean, the very source of life? You see, when you willfully cut yourself off from the very source of life itself, God, things will begin to what? Die. Things will begin to deform when you cut yourself off from that source of life. Things will begin to deconstruct, right? John 15, vine and branches. Or I can just give me a chainsaw. I was using one yesterday. I go out there and I cut off one of those branches from its source. Its source of life. What's going to happen? It's going to begin to wither. It's going to begin to deform. It's going to begin to uh, destruct. It's going to eventually die. Humanity, then and now, we cut ourselves off from the very source of life. And this is what happens. And we begin to create brokenness, deformity, Destruction because we cut ourselves off. Here's the other thing. When we run away from God, here's what happens. We start looking to make other things God. Because we were made to worship. You were made to be in awe, fear, and wonder of God. Every human being, whether they're an atheist or not. Right? 
And so what happens is humanity begins to deify things that aren't God. Sex, money, celebrities, I don't know, name your thing. We begin to deify it and treat it like God and let it rule over us instead of letting God and his goodwill rule over us. Humans are constantly, I think it was, might have been Frederick Nietzsche who said that, that doesn't sound like a Nietzsche thing. He wasn't really a, a friend of Christ. But someone who said that uh, human beings are, are, are idol factories. Who was that? Uh, if you know, tell me later, right? We're continually deifying things because we're made to worship God, yet we like to run from God. This has been the sinful pattern of humanity since our ancestors, okay? Genesis 3, happened and happens. Now watch what takes place in the story. Right after this original rebellion, we're now in Genesis 4. And there's already violence and murder. What happens when you cut yourself off? You begin to deform into all kinds of non-helpful good activity. And there's already not just violence, but there's murder between two brothers. You know the story. Well, Cain and Abel, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. My brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, what does Cain do after he kills his brother? In the rest of chapter four. Watch this. He goes on to build a city. A city. Why? Why does Cain go on, murders his brother, and he goes on to build a city? Because society building is woven into the DNA of human beings. It's what God intended us to originally do in Eden, in the garden, to construct a city of God, right? But instead, we chose to run from God and construct a, not a city of God, but a godless city. Look in chapter four, right there at verse 16. It says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. So it's no longer a city of God. He's making his own city and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Stop there. Now notice something here in the text. He doesn't name the city after the God who made him, but rather after his own offspring. Do you see that? He's taking God's glory for himself. Right? He's trying to make a name for himself, for humanity, not for the God who gives him life and breath and enables all of us to get up in the morning. We should name things after after him. Rather, he's naming it after himself. Right? And as you read on in chapter 4, in this godly, godless excuse me, city, there's already the forging of weaponry. You see that down there? Uh, where is it? Verse 22 says, The forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Bible scholars believe this is when they started to create bronze and iron weaponry because it's already a city of violence, right? So not only 
do we have the forging of weaponry here? There's more murder here if you read the story. And there's even the subjugation of women already in chapter 4 because polygamy exists. He says, I will take two wives. And polygamy from the beginning takes off in humanity. Broken world. Chaos. From the beginning. Watch. We're going to continue. Things get so bad in this early civilization of humanity that the only good thing, the only right thing, in some sense the only loving thing that God could do is end it and start all over because it got that bad. Let me show it to you in the text. Go to chapter 6. You came to hear the Bible this morning, didn't you? You doing good? You seem like you are. I'm having fun. We want to answer the question. So pick up chapter 6, verse 5. How bad did it get? Well, let's look. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. What a phrase. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Pick up in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so God brings a judgment, a reset, right? We know this is the flood. And after the flood, God then looks to Noah and to his family to start the Genesis 1 and 2 project all over again. Right? He wants to reset. And he he wants them to build a city of God. Look look at chapter 9. So this is after the judgment of the flood. He's going to say the words to Noah and his family that he said to Adam and Eve in the beginning of humanity. And it's all about them constructing a holy society. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What do our ancestors do with that command? Well, if you know the story, they go on to build another godless city in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Turn there. God's not giving up on his plan. To construct a holy city where he dwells in harmony and in love with humanity. But we keep frustrating it. Look what they do. This is long after Noah's family. This is, you know, sons of sons of sons, daughters of daughters of daughters. And we're at it again. Verse 4, chapter 11. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see what's happening? They don't want to serve God. They want to build a tower to, to, to have and be to, to heaven to become God. That's what's happening in the text. They believe they don't need God. They believe they can make God irrelevant. They believe they can rule and run society. For themselves, they can erase God out of all of it. Does that at all sound familiar? What year is this? 
Like, what sounds say? 2023. This has been happening since the very beginning. This cycle just repeats itself throughout human history, generation after generation, century after century, society after society. We continue this cyclical way of cutting ourselves off from our loving creator, deforming and destructing into all kinds of chaos, right? And trying to make God irrelevant and make a name for ourselves. What's the temptation of, of the serpent in the very beginning? He says, if you eat this, you'll become like God. It's not just that it happened, it's that it has been happening over and over. And this is what's caused so much brokenness in our world ever since. Not only that, there's two other things that happened that we can't miss. By rebelling against God, we empowered two entities to rule over us in the process. Satan and sin. So this is original story of all the brokenness and chaos that spun off very quickly. Original intention, God, city of God, we built godless cities. But there's something that happens in the story that perpetuates this even more. Satan and sin. In Genesis 3, when our ancestors chose to trust Satan's word over God's, they empowered him to rule over them. They said, I'm going to trust you over I trust, trust in God. I'm going to have more faith in you than having faith in God. That's going to create some chaos. And it's happened ever since that day where we let him become ruler. This is why in Matthew chapter 4, if we can bring that to the screen, when there's the temptation of Satan to the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, he says this. Do we have it? Yeah. He, watch what happens. He takes him up on the mountain, right? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I, this is Satan, will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. We've let him be empowered to rule the world. Look what Jesus says, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he's talking about the devil. Look at how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, in their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world. <laughs> That's how much we've empowered him. Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that's number one. But number two, we also chose to let sin rule over us instead of God. And in the process, it becomes our slave master ever since that original day. Look at what Jesus says about sin as a slave master. John 8, if we have that, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Not my words, but the words of Jesus. Romans 6, Paul says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? For when you were slaves of sin, he says, you were free in regard to righteousness. So this is why, isn't this like as, as concise, how long did I go? I mean, that's like how, that's as best I can do, right? 
This is why we have the broken world that we have. I could spend 10 more sermons on this, but in a nutshell, that's what's happening. This is why stories like Mark 9 happen, where a boy becomes demonized. I don't know how, but becomes demonized in some kind of way. And a desperate father says, if you can do anything, please help my son. This is why there's tragedies that surround us every single day. And, and here's the thing. Here's the gospel. In the midst of this broken chaos that we created through our rebellion, God did not walk away from us. God did not walk away from humanity. The city of God that he intended in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2, he will still pull off at the end of history, at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. He's committed to it. That's covenant. He's committed to it no matter what. He will in some kind of way overcome our sinfulness to bless us. This is who our God is. He is a loving father. When your son or daughter runs away, do you give up on them? Or have you covenanted to them through your love to say no matter what they do, I'm committed to trying to get to the end of their life and making it something good and beautiful for them. Right? This is who God our father is. Think of this. Genesis 1 and the end of the Bible, right? City of God. All the pages in between are God's sovereign struggle to get us there. Yeah. <laughs> like All 66 books of the Bible are God's attempt to get humanity to the point of becoming those who build a godly city and society that he eventually pulls off in the end. I love God's word. It is so clear and comprehensive. It is so true and insightful. You will not find it anywhere else. And so God, we're still in Genesis, God makes a covenant with a man of history, you know his name, Abraham, to bless humanity, not walk away from them. Can I show it to you? You should be in chapter 11. We're now in chapter 12. So after they try and build another godless city, God doesn't walk away. He's a loving parent. And he says this. He says, I'm going to find a family to bless all families. I'm going to find a way to redeem this and eventually build that city and society. Chapter 12, verse 2. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth, that's every person, shall be blessed. That's God's heart. To bless every person he's ever made. Now here's history. From this line of people in Genesis 12, Abraham's family, this is the Israelites. From this line, Jesus is eventually born centuries later into this world as the Messiah. What is he here to do? He's here to call a new people of God to work toward building a new city and society of God. That's me and you. That's Christians. You're the Jesus people. Called to build the kingdom of God, the society of God. Right? which God will bring to final completion at the end of Revelation. And get this, Jesus' death and resurrection will reverse the power of sin, Satan, and death over any human who chooses to follow him. We'll find that as we get there later this year. 
All of that brings us back to our account today in Mark chapter 9. Turn back there with me. Jesus, the Messiah, is on the earth. Centuries and centuries later, since God promised to Abraham that through his line he would bless all nations, well, the blessing is here. And it's Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary. And what is Jesus doing? He's confronting the brokenness of the world in this young man. Right? Here's what happens. Jesus tries to find out more. We saw that in verse 21. He says, how long has this been happening to him? Like a medical doctor, right? He's trying to understand the ailment. The father goes on, he says in verse 22, he says, from childhood, and has often cast my boy into the fire, into water to destroy him, is what he says, right? And then he goes on, he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I just, I feel the father in the, this, this distraught father in that moment, right? He's brought him to the disciples and they couldn't cast the demon out. And now he's come to Jesus and he's just said, listen, if you can just do anything, that's the language here. If you can just do anything, you can have compassion, you can help us. Please help us, Jesus, right? What does Jesus say back to him? Verse 23, he says, if you can, all things are possible. For the one who believes. In the New Living Translation, it says, What do you mean if I can? And he's talking to the Messiah. He, he, may, he just doesn't know that quite yet. What do you mean if I can? The issue is not Jesus' ability, um, it's, it's not his ability here, but it's a willingness to respond in faith since everything is possible, he says. For the one who believes. The point is not, of course, that with enough, enough faith you can do anything. That kind of theology is, is unbiblical. It's rather that God has the power to do anything. Right? It's not the amount of faith that is important. It is the object of that faith. And the object of that faith is God. It's what we said in the beginning. It is faith in a big God in a broken world. That's why it says that Jesus says, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's because that faith is in the sovereign Lord of the universe. Not because there's some big spiritual person. It's because the faith they have in is, well, God. Watch the Father's human response to what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And watch his response, verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out, and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Man, I can relate to that. What a human moment. Have you ever found yourself there? I believe, God. I mean, you're in prayer. There's a crisis. There's a tragedy. There's a, there's a parent. There's a child. There's something. There's a financial issue. Or just watch the news. Right? In this broken world. This happens. This hurting father exemplifies having big faith in a big God in a broken world. Well, how? He just talked about his unbelief. How is he exemplifying this? Because he has some faith and yet he calls out to God for more faith. 
I believe. Help my unbelief. He knows without God's power and help, he can't have more faith. So he cries out, help my unbelief. He's totally dependent on God here. He says, I, I believe, but, but, but help me with more, right? On, on both sides of the coin, he's having big faith in a big God in the midst of a broken world. Friends, there's so much that's going to happen in our lives that you will not understand. You won't get it. There's suffering. There's tragedy. And it won't always make sense. But there's going to be a choice every single time by the power of His grace where you can say, I believe, but help my unbelief. You're honest about your humanity and your sinfulness and your weakness. That's what this father is saying. He's not some proud man that says, I believe. I, I check it off. I go to Grace Athens every Sunday. I have faith. How dare you, Jesus? He's saying, I, I believe, but, but help me. I need more. I need more. My boy has been convulsing on the ground since a child. It's not easy to watch. I haven't lost my faith. But give me more. Give me more. This is big faith in a big God in a broken world. I love this father because it's me and it's you. And God supplies the faith. Look what happens. Jesus in verse 25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Can you imagine the conversation of that dad and boy on the way home? <laughs> Can you imagine the joy, the gratefulness, the building up of their faith in God and in the Messiah sent named Jesus? Friends, we live in a broken world. One that God our Father hasn't given up on. One that God our Father will seek to the end. Until now, he's called a people like us to, by his grace, by humility and honesty, dependency like this dad had, to have this kind of big faith in a big God in a broken world. Our, 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 our culture needs to see this. This younger generation, who there's some really great stuff happening, you're going to hear about that in a moment. They need to see a people who are honest about their weakness, but big on their dependency in God. We want Grace Athens to be a center and sender for, for the kingdom of God. And it starts with honest, humble faith. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're in a crisis right now. That's you. This message is for you. This Father's words are for you. And if you're not, you will be. And you'll remember what this Father said. But here's the reality. It takes all of us. I can't have my faith built without the help of my brothers and sisters. Why do we do house church? To build up one another's faith. To build up friendship in the Lord. Right? 
Why do we want so many college students here? Because we want to begin to build them up in their faith so that when they graduate, they don't simply live for the American dream, but they live for the kingdom dream. They hear what they heard this morning and say, God is committed. He's a father. He loves us. He hasn't abandoned our world. And he's going to eventually build a, a city of God. And for me to invest in anything else is not worth it. We want students graduating who aren't just committed to repeating history and saying, this is about building a name for myself, all about me, all about me. No, we want people who say, I want to serve God, and I want to be a part of the church of God that builds this city now and forever. So what are we doing? We're in a little old cafeteria. But you keep coming. And we got three house churches. And God's doing something new with us in 2023. He's going to build us every year into these kind of faith-driven people who can say, I don't know why this has happened to you, but I know God is a father, and he's with you, and he loves you, and he's going to get you through this. Amen? Amen. Let me invite Caleb and the team. We have a reason to worship God this morning. We have a reason to sing and to praise the God who's loved this world through it all and will continue to. He's worthy of your worship this morning. He's worthy of your thanksgiving. So in a moment, we'll get to sing to him and thank him for what he's done and what he's still doing. In the meantime, check. Check. In the meantime, check. We're going to take communion. So go ahead and grab those communion elements as you have them. you're missing some and you want some, you can just slip up your hand and we'll get them to you. The first way we want to worship is by going back to Jesus' cross where he defeated Satan's sin and death. Can't wait to get to that later in the story. By the way, Lent started. We are 40 days on our way to Holy Week, the passion of Jesus, where we'll look deeper into some of this stuff we share. But until then, let's go to the table of God this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to your table. You say this is living bread. You came out of heaven to feed the world. Your father loves the world and wants to feed it with you. You're our food this morning. Feed us to have this kind of faith in the midst of our broken world. Make us hope-filled people and help us when we're not. We eat this in your presence and in your name. And all God's people said, amen.